section fifteen of psychology of the unconscious by carl jung this librivox recording is in the public domain section fifteen chapter four one the unconscious origin of the hero prepared by the previous chapters we approach the personification of the libido in the form of a conqueror a hero or a demon with this symbolism leaves the impersonal and neuter realm which characterizes the astral and meteorologic symbol and takes human form the figure of a being changing from sorrow to joy from joy to sorrow and which like the sun sometimes stands in its zenith sometimes is plunged in darkest night and arises from this very night to new splendor just as the sun guided by its own internal laws ascends from morn till noon and passing beyond the noon descends towards evening leaving behind its splendour and then sinks completely into the all-enveloping night thus too does mankind follow his course according to immutable laws and also sinks after his course is completed into night in order to rise again in the morning to a new cycle in his children the symbolic transition from sun to man is easy and practicable the third and last creation of miss miller's also takes this course she calls this piece chewantable a hypnagogic poem she gives us the following information about the circumstances surrounding the origin of this fantasy after an evening of care and anxiety i lay down to sleep at about half-past eleven i felt excited and unable to sleep although i was very tired there was no light in the room i closed my eyes and then i had the feeling that something was about to happen the sensation of a general relaxation came over me and i remained as passive as possible lines appeared before my eyes sparks and shining spirals followed by a kaleidoscopic review of recent trivial occurrences the reader will regret with me that we cannot know the reason for her cares and anxieties it would have been of great importance for what follows to have information on this point this gap in our knowledge is the more to be deplored because between the first poem in eighteen ninety eight and the time of the fantasy here discussed nineteen o two four whole years have passed all information is lacking regarding this period during which the great problem surely survived in the unconscious perhaps this lack has its advantages in that our interest is not diverted from the universal applicability of the fantasy here produced by sympathy and regard to the personal fate of the author therefore something is obviated which often prevents the analyst in his daily task from looking away from the tedious toil of detail to that wider relation which reveals each neurotic conflict to be involved with human fate as a whole the condition depicted by the author here corresponds to such a one 
as usually precedes an intentional somnambulism often described by spiritualistic mediums a certain inclination to listen to these low nocturnal voices must be assumed otherwise such fine and hardly perceptible inner experiences pass unnoticed we recognize in this listening a current of the libido leading inward and beginning to flow towards a still invisible mysterious goal it seems that the libido has suddenly discovered an object in the depths of the unconscious which powerfully attracts it the life of man turned wholly to the external by nature does not ordinarily permit such introversion there must therefore be surmised a certain exceptional condition that is to say a lack of external objects which compels the individual to seek a substitute for them in his own soul it is however difficult to imagine that this rich world has become too poor to offer an object for the love of human atoms nor can the world and its objects be held accountable for this lack it offers boundless opportunities for every one it is rather the incapacity to love which robs mankind of his possibilities this world is empty to him alone who does not understand how to direct his libido towards objects and to render them alive and beautiful for himself for beauty does not indeed lie in things but in the feeling that we give to them that which compels us to create a substitute for ourselves is not the external lack of objects but our incapacity to lovingly include a thing outside of ourselves certainly the difficulties of the conditions of life and the adversities of the struggle for existence may oppress us yet even adverse external situations would not hinder the giving out of the libido on the contrary they may spur us on to the greatest exertions whereby we bring our whole libido into reality real difficulties alone will never be able to force the libido back permanently to such a degree as to give rise for example to a neurosis the conflict which is the condition of every neurosis is lacking the resistance which opposes its unwillingness to the will alone has the power to produce that pathogenic introversion which is the starting point of every psychogenic disturbance the resistance against loving produces the inability to love just as the normal libido is comparable to a steady stream which pours its waters broadly into the world of reality so the resistance dynamically considered is comparable not so much to a rock rearing up in the river-bed which is flooded over or surrounded by the stream as to a backward flow towards the source a part of the soul desires the outer object another part however harks back to the subjective world where the airy and fragile palaces of fantasy beckon one can assume the dualism of the human will for which bluler from the psychiatric point of view has coined the word 
ambitendency as something generally present bearing in mind that even the most primitive motor impulse is in opposition as for example in the act of extension the flexor muscles also become innervated this normal ambitendency however never leads to an inhibition or prevention of the intended act but is the indispensable preliminary requirement for its perfection and coordination for a resistance disturbing to this act to arise from this harmony of finely attuned opposition an abnormal plus or minus would be needed on one or the other side the resistance originates from this added third this applies also to the duality of the will from which so many difficulties arise for mankind the abnormal third frees the pair of opposites which are normally most intimately united and causes their manifestation in the form of separate tendencies it is only thus that they become willingness and unwillingness which interfere with each other the bhagavad-gita says be thou free of the pairs of opposites the harmony thus becomes disharmony it cannot be my task here to investigate whence the unknown third arises and what it is taken at the roots in the case of our patients the nuclear complex freud reveals itself as the incest problem the sexual libido regressing to the parents appears as the incest tendency the reason this path is so easily travelled is due to the enormous indolence of mankind which will relinquish no object of the past but will hold it fast for ever the sacrilegious backward grasp of which nietzsche speaks reveals itself stripped of its incest covering as an original passive arrest of the libido in its first object of childhood this indolence is also a passion as la rochefoucauld has brilliantly expressed it of all passions that which is least known to ourselves is indolence it is the most ardent and malignant of them all although its violence may be insensible and the injuries it causes may be hidden if we will consider its power attentively we will see that it makes itself upon all occasions mistress of our sentiments of our interests and of our pleasures it is the anchor which has the power to arrest the largest vessels it is a calm more dangerous to the most important affairs than rocks and the worst tempest the repose of indolence is a secret charm of the soul which suddenly stops the most ardent pursuits and the firmest resolutions finally to give the true idea of this passion one must say that indolence is like a beatitude of the soul which consoles it for all its losses and takes the place of all its possessions this dangerous passion belonging above all others to primitive man appears under the hazardous mask of the incest symbol from which the incest fear must drive us away and which must be conquered in the first place under the image of the terrible mother 
it is the mother of innumerable evils not the least of which are neurotic troubles for especially from the fogs of the arrested remnants of the libido arise the harmful phantasmagoria which so veil reality that adaptation becomes almost impossible however we will not investigate any further in this place the foundations of the incest fantasies the preliminary suggestion of my purely psychologic conception of the incest problem may suffice we are here only concerned with the question whether resistance which leads to introversion in our author signifies a conscious external difficulty or not if it were an external difficulty then indeed the libido would be violently dammed back and would produce a flood of fantasies which can best be designated as schemes that is to say plans as to how the obstacles could be overcome they would be very concrete ideas of reality which seek to pave the way for solutions it would be a strenuous meditation indeed which would be more likely to lead to anything rather than to a hypnagogic poem the passive condition depicted above in no way fits in with a real external obstacle but precisely through its passive submission it indicates a tendency which doubtless scorns real solutions and prefers fantastic substitutes ultimately and essentially we are therefore dealing with an internal conflict perhaps after the manner of those earlier conflicts which led to the two first unconscious creations we therefore are forced to conclude that the external object cannot be loved because a predominant amount of libido prefers a fantastic object which must be brought up from the depths of the unconscious as a compensation for the missing reality the visionary phenomena produced in the first stages of introversion are grouped among the well-known phenomena of hypnagogic vision they form as i explained in an earlier paper the foundation of the true visions of the symbolic auto-revelations of the libido as we may now express it miss miller continues then i had the impression that some communication was immediately impending it seemed to me as if there were re-echoed in me the words speak o lord for thy servant listens open thou mine ears this passage very clearly describes the intention the expression communication is even a current term in spiritualistic circles the biblical words contain a clear invocation or prayer that is to say a wish libido directed towards divinity the unconscious complex the prayer refers to samuel one three where samuel at night was three times called by god but believed that it was eli calling until the latter informed him that it was god himself who spoke and that he must answer if his name was called again speak o lord for thy servant hears the dreamer uses these words really in an inverse sense namely in order to produce god with them with that she directs her desires her libido into the depths of her unconscious we know that although individuals are widely separated by the differences in the contents of their consciousness they are closely alike 
in their unconscious psychology it is a significant impression for one working in practical psychoanalysis when he realizes how uniform are the typical unconscious complexes difference first arises from individualization this fact gives to an essential portion of the schopenhauer and hartmann philosophies a deep psychologic justification the very evident uniformity of the unconscious mechanism serves as a psychologic foundation for these philosophic views the unconscious contains the differentiated remnants of the earlier psychologic functions overcome by the individual differentiation the reaction and products of the animal psyche are of a generally diffused uniformity and solidity which among men may be discovered apparently only in traces man appears as something extraordinarily individual in contrast with animals this might be a tremendous delusion because we have the appropriate tendency always to recognize only the difference of things this is demanded by the psychologic adaptation which without the most minute differentiation of the impressions would be absolutely impossible in opposition to this tendency we have ever the greatest difficulty in recognizing in their common relations the things with which we are occupied in everyday life this recognition becomes much easier with things which are more remote from us for example it is almost impossible for a european to differentiate the faces in a chinese throng although the chinese have just as individual facial formations as the europeans but the similarity of their strange facial expression is much more evident to the remote onlooker than their individual differences but when we live among the chinese then the impression of their uniformity disappears more and more and finally the chinese become individuals also individuality belongs to those conditional actualities which are greatly overrated theoretically on account of their practical significance it does not belong to those overwhelmingly clear and therefore universally obtrusive general facts upon which a science must primarily be founded the individual content of consciousness is therefore the most unfavorable object imaginable for psychology because it has veiled the universally valid until it has become unrecognizable the essence of consciousness is the process of adaptation which takes place in the most minute details on the other hand the unconscious is the generally diffused which not only binds the individuals among themselves to the race but also unites them backwards with the peoples of the past and their psychology thus the unconscious surpassing the individual in its generality is in the first place the object of a true psychology which claims not to be psychophysical man as an individual is a suspicious phenomenon the right of whose existence from a natural biological standpoint could be seriously contested because from this point of view the individual is only a race atom and has a significance only as a mass constituent the ethical standpoint however gives to the human being an individual tendency separating him from the mass which in the course of centuries led to the development of personality hand in hand with which developed the hero cult and has led to the modern 
individualistic cult of personages the attempts of rationalistic theology to keep hold of the personal jesus as the last and most precious remnant of the divinity which has vanished beyond the power of the imagination corresponds to this tendency in this respect the roman catholic church was more practical because she met the general need of the visible or at least historically believed hero through the fact that she placed upon the throne of worship a small but clearly perceptible god of the world namely the roman pope the pater patrum and at the same time the pontifex maximus of the invisible upper or inner god the sensuous demonstrability of god naturally supports the religious process of introversion because the human figure essentially facilitates the transference for it is not easy to imagine something lovable or venerable in a spiritual being this tendency everywhere present has been secretly preserved in the rationalistic theology with its jesus historically insisted upon this does not mean that men love the visible god they love him not as he is for he is merely a man and when the pious wish to love humanity they go to their neighbours and their enemies to love them mankind wishes to love in god only their ideas that is to say the ideas which they project into god by that they wish to love their unconscious that is that remnant of ancient humanity and the centuries-old past in all people namely the common property left behind from all development which is given to all men like the sunshine in the air but in loving this inheritance they love that which is common to all thus they turn back to the mother of humanity that is to say to the spirit of the race and regain in this way something of that connection and of that mysterious and irresistible power which is imparted by the feeling of belonging to the herd it is the problem of Atheus who preserves his gigantic strength only through contact with mother earth this temporary withdrawal into oneself which as we have already seen signifies a regression to the childish bond to the parent seems to act favourably within certain limits in its effect upon the psychologic condition of the individual it is in general to be expected that the two fundamental mechanisms of the psychoses transference and introversion are to a wide extent extremely appropriate methods of normal reaction against complexes transference as a means of escaping from the complex into reality introversion as a means of detaching oneself from reality through the complex after we have informed ourselves about the general purposes of prayer we are prepared to hear more about the vision of our dreamer after the prayer the head of a sphinx with an egyptian headdress appeared only to vanish quickly here the author was disturbed so that for a moment she awoke this vision recalls the previously mentioned fantasy of the egyptian statue whose rigid gesture is entirely in place here as a phenomenon of the so-called functional category the light stages of the hypnosis are designated technically as engordissement stiffening the word sphinx in the whole civilized world signifies the same as riddle a puzzling creature who proposes riddles like the sphinx of oedipus standing at the portal of his fate like a symbolic proclamation of the inevitable the sphinx is a semi-theriomorphic representation of that mother image which may be designated as the terrible mother 
of whom many traces are found in mythology this interpretation is correct for oedipus here the question is opened the objection will be raised that nothing except the word sphinx justifies the allusion to the sphinx of oedipus on account of the lack of subjective materials which in the miller text are wholly lacking in regard to this vision an individual interpretation would also be excluded the suggestion of an egyptian fantasy part one chapter two is entirely insufficient to be employed here therefore we are compelled if we wish to venture at all upon an understanding of this vision to direct ourselves perhaps in all too daring a manner to the available ethnographic material under the assumption that the unconscious of the present-day man coins its symbols as it was done in the most remote past the sphinx in its traditional form is a half-human half-animal creature which we must in part interpret in the way that is applicable to such fantastic products the reader is directed to the deductions in the first part of this volume where the theriomorphic representations of the libido were discussed this manner of representation is very familiar to the analyst through the dreams and fantasies of neurotics and of normal men the impulse is readily represented as an animal as a bull horse dog etc one of my patients who had questionable relations with women and who began the treatment with the fear so to speak that i would surely forbid him his sexual adventures dreamed that i his physician very skilfully speared to the wall a strange animal half pig half crocodile dreams swarm with such theriomorphic representations of the libido mixed beings such as are in this dream are not rare a series of very beautiful illustrations where especially the lower half of the animal was represented theriomorphically has been furnished by Bertz Schinger. the libido which was represented theriomorphically is the animal sexuality which is in a repressed state the history of repression as we have seen goes back to the incest problem where the first motives for moral resistance against sexuality display themselves the objects of the repressed libido are in the last degree the images of father and mother therefore the theriomorphic symbols in so far as they do not symbolize merely the libido in general have a tendency to present father and mother for example father represented by a bull mother by a cow from these roots as we pointed out earlier might probably arise the theriomorphic attributes of the divinity in as far as the repressed libido manifests itself under certain conditions as anxiety these animals are generally of a horrible nature in consciousness we are attached by all sacred bonds to the mother in the dream she pursues us as a terrible animal the sphinx mythologically considered is actually a fear animal which reveals distinct traits of a mother derivate in the oedipus legend the sphinx is sent by hera who hates thebes on account of the birth of bacchus because oedipus conquers the sphinx which is nothing but fear of the mother he must marry jocasta his mother for the throne and the hand of the widowed queen of thebes belong to him who freed the land from the plague of the sphinx the genealogy of the sphinx is rich in allusions to the problem touched upon here she is a daughter of echnida a mixed being a beautiful maiden above a hideous serpent below this double creature corresponds to the picture of the mother 
above the human lovely and attractive half below the horrible animal half converted into a fear animal through the incest prohibition agneta is derived from the all-mother the mother earth gaea who with tartarus the personified underworld the place of horrors brought her forth agneta herself is the mother of all terrors of the chimera scylla gorgo of the horrible cerberus of the nemean lion and of the eagle who devoured the liver of prometheus besides this she gave birth to a number of dragons one of her sons is orthus the dog of the monstrous geryon who was killed by hercules with his dog her son acneta in incestuous intercourse produced the sphinx these materials will suffice to characterize that amount of libido which led to the sphinx symbol if in spite of the lack of subjective material we may venture to draw an inference from the sphinx symbol of our author we must say that the sphinx represents an original incestuous amount of libido detached from the bond to the mother perhaps it is better to postpone this conclusion until we have examined the following visions after miss miller had concentrated herself again the vision developed further suddenly an aztec appeared absolutely clear in every detail the hands spread open with large fingers the head in profile armoured headdress similar to the feathered ornaments of the american indian the whole was somewhat suggestive of mexican sculpture the ancient egyptian character of the sphinx is replaced here by american antiquity by the aztec the essential idea is neither egypt nor mexico for the two could not be interchanged but it is the subjective factor which the dreamer produces from her own past i have frequently observed in the analysis of americans that certain unconscious complexes that is repressed sexuality are represented by the symbol of a negro or an indian for example when a european tells in his dream then came a ragged dirty individual for americans and for those who live in the tropics it is a negro when with europeans it is a vagabond or a criminal with americans it is a negro or an indian which represents the individual's own repressed sexual personality and the one considered inferior it is also desirable to go into the particulars of this vision as there are various things worthy of notice the feather cap which naturally had to consist of eagle's feathers is a sort of magic charm the hero assumes at the same time something of the sunlight character of this bird when he adorns himself with its feathers just as the courage and strength of the enemy are appropriated in swallowing his heart or taking his scalp at the same time the feather crest is a crown which is equivalent to the rays of the sun the historical importance of the sun identification has been seen in the first part especial interest attaches to the hand which is described as open and the fingers which are described as large it is significant that it is the hand upon which the distinct emphasis falls one might rather have expected a description of the facial expression it is well known that the gesture of the hand is significant unfortunately we know nothing about that here nevertheless a parallel fantasy might be mentioned which also puts the emphasis upon hands a patient in a hypnagogic condition saw his mother painted on a wall like a painting in a byzantine church she held one hand up open wide with fingers spread apart the fingers were very large swollen into knobs on the ends and each surrounded by a small halo the immediate association with this picture was the fingers of a frog with sucking discs at the ends then the similarity to the penis the ancient setting of this mother picture is also of importance evidently the hand had 
in this fantasy a phallic meaning this interpretation was confirmed by a further very remarkable fantasy of the same patient he saw something like a sky-rocket ascending from his mother's hand which at a closer survey becomes a shining bird with golden wings a golden pheasant as it then occurs to his mind we have seen in the previous chapter that the hand has actually a phallic generative meaning and that this meaning plays a great part in the production of fire in connection with this fantasy there is but one observation to make fire was bored with the hand therefore it comes from the hand agni the fire was worshipped as a golden-winged bird it is extremely significant that it is the mother's hand i must deny myself the temptation to enter more deeply into this let it be sufficient to have pointed out the possible significance of the hand of the aztec by means of these parallel hand fantasies we have mentioned the mother suggestively with the sphinx the aztec taking the place of the sphinx points through his suggestive hand to parallel fantasies in which the phallic hand really belongs to the mother likewise we encounter an antique setting in parallel fantasies the significance of the antique which experience has shown to be the symbol for infantile is confirmed by miss miller in this connection in the annotation to her fantasies for she says in my childhood i took a special interest in the aztec fragments and in the history of peru and of the incas through the two analyses of children which have been published we have attained an insight into the child's small world and have seen what burning interests and questions secretly surround the parents and that the parents are for a long time the objects of the greatest interest we are therefore justified in suspecting that the antique setting applies to the ancients that is to say the parents and that consequently this aztec has something of the father or mother in himself up to this time indirect hints point only to the mother which is nothing remarkable in an american girl because americans as a result of the extreme detachment from the father are characterized by a most enormous mother complex which again is connected with the especial social position of woman in the united states this position brings about a special masculinity among capable women which easily makes possible the symbolizing into a masculine figure after this vision miss miller felt that a name formed itself bit by bit which seemed to belong to this aztec the son of an inca of peru the name is chihuantepel as the author intimated something similar to this belonged to her childish reminiscences the act of naming is like baptism something exceedingly important for the creation of a personality because since olden times a magic power has been attributed to the name with which for example the spirit of the dead can be conjured to know the name of any one means in mythology to have power over that one as a well-known example i mention the fairy tale of rapalstilskin in an egyptian myth isis robs the sun-god ray permanently of his power by compelling him to tell her his real name therefore to give a name means to give power invest with a definite personality the author observed in regard to the name itself that it reminded her very much of the impressive name popo catapeltal a name which belongs to unforgettable school memories and to the greatest indignation of the patient very often emerges in an analysis 
in a dream or fantasy and brings with it the same old joke which one heard in school told oneself and later again forgot although one might hesitate to consider this unhallowed joke as of psychologic importance still one must inquire for the reason of its being one must also put as a counter question why is it always popa coddle pedal and not neighbouring ista kikwattle or the even higher and just as clear or ritsaba the last has certainly the more beautiful and more easily pronounced name popa pedal is impressive because of its onomatopoetic name in english the word is to pop pop gun which is here considered as onomatopoesy in german the words are hinterpommern pumpernickel bomb petard lepet equals flatus the frequent german word popo podex does not indeed exist in english but flatus is designated as to poop in childish speech the act of defecation is often designated as to pop a joking name for the posterior part is the bum poop also means the rear end of a ship in french poof is onomatopoetic poofer equals platson to explode la poupe equals rear end of a ship le pompard equals the baby in arms la poupe equals doll poupon is a pet name for a chubby-faced child in dutch pop german papa and latin puppus equal doll in plaudus however it is also used jokingly for the posterior part of the body poupus means child pupula equals girl little dolly the greek word papa designates a cracking snapping or blowing sound it is used of kissing by theocritus also of the associated noise of flute blowing the etymologic parallels show a remarkable relationship between the part of the body in question and the child this relationship we will mention here only to let it drop at once as this question will claim our attention later one of my patients in his childhood had always connected the act of defecation with the fantasy that his posterior was a volcano and a violent eruption took place explosion of gases and gushings forth of lava the terms for the elemental occurrences of nature are originally not at all poetical one thinks for example of the beautiful phenomenon of the meteor which the german language most unpoetically calls stern schnupper the smouldering wick of a star certain south american indians call the shooting star the urine of the stars according to this principle of the least resistance expressions are taken from the nearest source available for example the transference of the metronomic expression of urination as schiffens to rain End of section 15